I'm Siobhan McClay. And I'm Jen Jackson. And this is Embodiment for the Rest of Us, a podcast series exploring topics within the intersections that exist in fat liberation. In this show, we interview professionals and those with lived experience alike to learn how they are affecting radical change and how we can all make this world a safer place for those living in larger bodies and in marginalized spaces. Captions and content warnings are provided in the show notes for each episode, including specific timestamps, so that you can skip triggering content anytime that feels supportive to you. We are always interested in any feedback on this process if something needs to be addressed. You can email us at listener, L-I-S-T-E-N-E-R, at embodimentfortherestofus.com. And now for today's episode. Hi, and welcome to Season 1, Episode 2 of Embodiment for the Rest of Us. In this episode, Jen, pronouns she, her, and Siobhan, pronouns she, her, discuss their personal journeys of embodiment. This entire episode basically is one big content warning. Here are some highlights of those, just to give you a sense of that. Discussion of privilege, mention of eating disorders and disordered eating, mention of mental health struggles, mention of unintentional weight loss, mention of substance use, and mention of neurodiversity barriers. Like Jen said, this whole podcast episode is one big content warning, and there's it's really one big trigger warning, too. It was pretty um, intense for us to record and to listen to it again. Um, we talk about um, Overeaters Anonymous, pregnancy weight loss, sexual assault, alcohol use, medical fat phobia, and um, sexuality. A few things that I would like to repair that I said during this episode, um, I don't see eating as a compulsive behavior. I think it was just kind of some residual stuff coming up as I was talking about Overeaters Anonymous, and I think it sounded like that when I was talking about it. I also really wanted to repair and say that some people do indeed eat to protect themselves after sexual assault or create a barrier in some way after sexual assault. And in the show notes, there's a link to Hunger by Roxane Gay, and that includes a really great discussion of someone who did do that intentionally. Thank you for that, Siobhan. And for all content warnings, trigger warnings, um, you can look to the show notes and transcripts for the timestamps. And here is our episode. Hello. Last time we got to know our co-hosts, Siobhan and Jen. We had an absolute blast. It was just as interesting to share and hear ourselves and what we had to say, as well as getting to listen to each other. Not to toot our own horns too much, (laughs) but there's something really special about this space. Um, Talking about challenging topics with a sense of lightness that doesn't take away from them. I would listen to our podcast. (laughs) It's a really good thing that we can. (laughs) Um, In editing the last episode, I realized that one thing we didn't talk about was our own embodiment journeys, and I would love to talk about that now. Being vulnerable and transparent in this way is such a great foundation for these conversations. So I'd like to start if that's okay. Sure, go ahead. (laughs) I'm actually really nervous. I'm just going to be upfront and vulnerable about that. I don't always share kind of where I came from and how I came to find some ownership and belonging within my body. So it's a little scary to talk about. 
Um, so uh, I first realized that my body was unacceptable when I was about eight or nine. Um, I remember my school nurse sending a note home saying that I was overweight. <laughs> Uh, I went on my first diet around then and kind of dieted off and on for most of my life. I I felt like, um, well, I've never been diagnosed with an eating disorder. My eating has been disordered for most of my life. For as long as I can remember, food has been used for basically any feeling. I remember first turning to it when I was a kid, when I didn't know how to express my feelings or wasn't allowed to express my feelings and kind of morphed along um, as I became an adult. Food's always been my go-to. Um, I saw a lot of therapists throughout the years regarding my relationship with food and my body. And I believe about seven years ago, I was pretty depressed about my body and with food and what I hope was a well-meaning coworker told me about Overeaters Anonymous, about OA. And I was involved with OA for about three years. So I wouldn't recommend Overeaters Anonymous to anyone. I have lots of opinions about it. And while I think that the 12-step recovery model can be really helpful with some forms of compulsive behavior, I don't believe that it is appropriate for someone's relationship with food or their body mm. or with eating disorders. Got well, I was going to say, I also have a lot of opinions about um, Overeaters Anonymous, including having gone there myself. Um, I actually wasn't going to include oh. that in my, my journey today, but I think I'd love to like bookmark this and talk about that later. Um, yeah. Because structure can be so helpful for someone who feels structureless. Yes. And mm -hmm. yet, um, when the othering that happens inside of that system that creates things as an individual's responsibility, they're actually about larger systems and about yeah. something that's required to live. Therefore, we cannot be addicted to. It's a real like challenge yes. about that. I would love to dig into that more later with you. So I'm, I was just thinking. I would love that. Let's definitely talk about that. Yeah, definitely. I, I don't agree with it. Like I said, I, I think they're, it's very problematic, but it gave me what I needed at the time. Just like you said, it gave me a sense of structure. It gave me community. I grew up in a very, very strictly Christian home. And so, you know, as I grew up, I moved away from the church, but I missed that sense of community of the church. And that gave me that sense of community. Um, so gave me people who understood kind of where I was coming from. So at least looking back, I can say it gave me what I needed. Yeah. I don't think it did everything I needed, mm. but it did at the moment. Well, um, that's reminding me of like relatedness and witnessing and how important it can be in that program to have yes. mm -hmm. the knowing within yourself that you were perceived in that very particular way Yes, as a form of yeah. like, that's safety, although I think it could feel like that, maybe something else, but just like something grounding in that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yes. So I've been in a way for about three years at that point. Um, I'm thinking as I go back in my, you know, timeline in my head, I actually was first introduced to OA 10 years ago. So I've been in about three years and I remember having this massive freak out because I had an ingredient that I wasn't allowed to have. Um, 
by mistake. And I remember crying and, you know, feeling like I lost my quote abstinence unquote. And it just sent me to a really low place and, um, lots of guilt, lots of shame around it. But one thing I remembered after kind of that freak out was like, am I really going to let it ruin my day that I ate one thing? Like that just felt not okay to me. And it led me to finding out about intuitive eating online one night. Um, I read the book quite a few times and it really clicked. And so I would say for about three years or so, I really learned to enjoy less angst about my body and just ate what felt right. And it was a really comfortable time for me in terms of food. And I thought I'd done, you know, I talked about it with therapists. I talked about it with friends. Um, I thought I'd done, quote, the work, unquote. And I, during this time, I divorced my first husband, moved across the country back to the Southwest and was just kind of, living my life. And, and then I met my current husband, my second husband, and we got pregnant. <laughs> and apparently I had not done as much work as I thought when it came to my body. I realized that for years, what I'd really been doing was keeping a super tight hold on food and trying to, I, you know, kind of intuitive eating my way through life. Some people really treat it as a diet. I definitely treated it as a diet um, in that I was very strict about when I ate, what I ate, how I ate, where I ate, you know, et cetera. And so it was kind of transferring this need from this need for control that I didn't have as a kid into dieting than into intuitively eating. And so, yeah, being pregnant made me realize how little control I had of my body ever <laughs> because I had this tiny parasite who I adore, but it was the parasite <laughs> kind of determining how my body functioned. And I also lost a lot of weight and it was because I was so sick. I was, I had horrible morning sickness with both of my sons. And funnily enough, it was actually really hard for me because I'd worked so hard to accept my body in a certain shape and I lost weight so quickly and so uncontrollably that I, it was the smallest I've been in a really long time. And I didn't know how to relate to my body when it was smaller. It just felt really foreign to me. It was really uncomfortable. And it was the first time in my life that I struggled to eat or I had to remind myself to eat. And that was a very different relationship too. Um, so yeah, I had two kids within 15 months. So that was <laughs> a bit of a, a jolt to the body and the life as well. And one thing that I can say that was really nice about it was while I was pregnant was the least I cared about my body. So I struggled with the fact that it was smaller, but I also, you know, the first trimester and a half, um, lost a good amount of weight and then gained weight to almost get back to where I'd been before. And it was the first time that I didn't feel any angst, any guilt, any shame about gaining weight because I was growing children in there. And, um, after, I gave birth to my second kiddo. I went to therapy and got a lot of support around my postpartum depression and postpartum anxiety. And somehow that made me feel like I was ready to go on my last diet. <laughs> it was my very last diet. And I stopped within a week. 
um, because I realized this was not healthy for me and this is not going to help me enjoy my body more, love my body more. And since then I've been, you know, in pretty regular therapy regarding my food and my body. And I can say in doing this work with my clients and doing this podcast and just living, um, this is the first time that I really feel like I'm embodying myself. Um, so in terms of embodiment, I kind of see this as integrating and accepting all aspects of myself. Some aspects of myself have felt easier than others, like being Black. I love being Black. I love my natural hair. I love being dark-skinned. What really felt like a challenge was connecting my body to who I am, which we'll definitely talk a lot about a lot. <laughs> I think it's an ongoing journey. I don't always love my body. I think that there's a amount of toxicity around the idea of body positivity and it's actually really harmful. So I don't always love my body, um, but I am at a place where I can always be grateful for it. I can always try to show it grace and I can always be neutral to it. And I think that that is a really big gift. I, it's funny as we're recording this, I'm actually, I have my face on the screen and that is something that I not, that I would not normally do. I normally don't look at myself when I, or at least in the past, didn't look at myself when I was on screen. And so I'm just finding little things here and there to feel embodied. I wore shorts yesterday. <laughs> I'm looking at myself on the screen. I, you know, say nicer things to myself and I'm really open about how I experience this world and what it means for me and how to interact with it and so this podcast has been an extension of that to help me grow and to help others grow and uh yeah I, I mean we'll talk more about embodiment and how it has played into our lives but I think that integrating all these aspects of myself is really important um how I interact with the world sexually physically emotionally spiritually all of those things um so yeah, that's kind of where I am in terms of embodiment right now. Wow. I felt a lot of warmth while listening to you and a lot of like wanting to hug you yeah. while listening to you. Yeah. So for those listening and can't see us, we are virtually talking and recording this over Zoom. So we can't um, hug each other right now, even though I'd like to. Um, and <laughs> I think the word resilience can feel really right with stigma that we must be mm -hmm. resilient and i still feel compelled to say that i could hear your resilience in that and i don't mean that you have to like grin and bear life but that i can hear you yeah. returning to yourself intentionally over and over again yes. which to me mm -hmm. is a big piece of embodiment that as life mm -hmm. changes that that can also shift that you still get to be you in whatever you are in this moment all of the shabans up until yeah. now um, there was an episode of This Is Us, which I have not finished this season. Um, and I'm so, Me either. So, there was, so I'm sorry if this is a spoiler to you, but there's an episode um, where I can't think of Chrissy Metz's character name, but her mom says to her, oh yeah, Kate. So her mom says to her, I can see every version of you in front of me and I hold them for you all the time. That even, even though Kate can't see herself and uh see even positive things in herself and feel supportive of herself mm -hmm. or like she had support in different areas of her life her mom's trying to express yeah. that she always was holding that for her 
um, which is a big breakthrough mm-hmm. moment for them. Their relationship hasn't been that great yes. as a result. Um, mm-hmm. And as I was listening to you, I was thinking, I just flashed to that and then back, that like I could hear you embracing all of the Shabbats, mm. which feels really oh. important, right? Even things, it's going to be misty. Yeah. It's going to be misty. Yeah, <laughs> so, it's coming. Yeah. <laughs> and I, as you were talking about body love, I was also thinking about body life, a lot like relationships with mm. anyone outside of us. That just because we yeah. love something doesn't mean we like it right now, and yet we still yeah. honor it. And I was hearing mm-hmm. that in what you said, which was making me think of wisdom and trust, and you said neutrality and respect, these beautiful yeah. aspects of that. Um, I hope that doesn't sound like I'm like glossing it over with positivity, because that's not my intention. No. <laughs> I was just like hearing, it was resonating with me, and these words like were the resonance. Um, yeah. I just, I love listening to it as always. So I wanted to share with you what I got from that, which was powerful. Thank you. That means a lot. Yeah, it was really emotional to write it. I feel like I could have just talked forever. I kind of <laughs> condensed it down. There are a lot of a lot of experiences um, that played into this. But yeah, I, I like, I feel the same way about resilience. I think sometimes it's often used like, just buck up, you're fine. And I love the show King of the Hill and the coach is like, just take a salt pill. And that's what I think. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, when I think about resilience, I, it also makes me think of, it's not always um, as accessible for everyone. So it makes me think of my privilege. Like I was lucky that I could always uh, afford therapy that I always was employed by an employer that offered, uh, you know, insurance and I could afford those co-pays. And I was lucky that, you know, when I think about my journey, you know, in terms of learning to like respect my body, that I had good role models. I, and that I grew up in a family that, you know, was larger bodied, but had people who loved their larger bodies that I grew up in a family where dark skin is glorified and um, never really had that experience of colorism. And that's not something that a lot of dark skin black women can say. Um, so there were a few things that just made it easier to be resilient. And the fact that I was willing to acknowledge that I had mental health um, struggles, I think in the black community, we're not in many, you know, ethnic communities, it's not, it's really frowned upon to admit that you're struggling. So yeah, lots of things plays in, played into my resilience. So and thank you. Uh, thank you for hearing me. And thank you for always being present for me and always holding space for me. Love I you. appreciate it. Love you. Mark, 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 mark. <laughs> what about you, Jen? Uh, why don't you tell me about your embodiment journey? Thank you. So just like you said there at the end of that, that I thought of just about everything, which really reminded me of how we and our bodies are one and the same. We're always traveling together Mm -hmm. Um, and how we don't always feel like we're friends with that or with ourselves or that we're allowed to do that, right? Absolutely. Oppressive structures, by Mm -hmm. powerful people, by quote unquote requirements, which I often call other people's checkboxes. Like they definitely don't feel like mine, right? Um, Yeah. So I think I'm going to bookend mine with two things that feel like really warm to me. And the first is like a warm moment of embodiment from childhood, although it was literally cold. And then one (laughs) that feels pretty recent 
to kind of ground myself in this because I just know my brain. And if I start talking about embodiment and the challenges of it, that I'm going to go just never stop. Like, I, like yeah. I just never stop. Yeah. So the child, <laughs> the childhood moment is we used to go camping and fishing with my grandfather, Papa Q. It's my mom's mm-hmm. dad. Um, his last name is Pizenberry. So he was a Papa oh. Q. Um, I love it. <laughs> and, but when I was too young to fish, even though I had like mm-hmm. a kitty fishing pole or could play with them. I could play with the uh, adults' fishing poles. And while the adults were fishing, the kids, we would play in the river, right? Down river, right? So we didn't mess with anyone's fishing experience. Um, and all the rivers we played in were downstream from mountains. And so it was all snow melt and runoff from the mountains. It was very, very cold. Mm-hmm. Um, and some people would wear like those water socks or water shoes or flip-flops or anything in this yeah. car, but we always went barefoot. The smooth rocks were just a really interesting experience. And I have a lot of distinct memories of being in this really cold water and just feeling the different rocks under my feet as I walked around. And I would just get really lost in the experience of my body in that river. I think about it a lot, actually, Mm. especially on a really hot day because I don't really like the heat very much. Mm. Just Even right now, I can feel myself cooling down thinking about it. It's like definitely a place I go to for that. And mm-hmm. I have, I am a white woman and I had body privilege growing up. I was not in a larger body uh, and I was a very mm-hmm. active child and I didn't have to think about these things because no one asked me to, no one presented me with um, questions to, that made me ask myself mm-hmm. that. I didn't see it a lot around my family because there were other people with body privilege and those who don't in my family who are in larger bodies. Um, I don't remember ever thinking about it or even pondering it, right? Which again, just speaks to my privileges of not having to have that awareness and just not even having to have a thought mm. about it. My embodiment journey, like noticing that I was embodied actually started when I was in college. So the first time I lived on my own. And what I noticed is that before I was about 18, that I, things would quote unquote happen to me, but I wouldn't really have any kind of awareness of it happening until it was over Mm. where I'm like, that didn't feel Mm. good, that situation, Mm -hmm. but I had no real way to reflect on. I had no details for myself. Um, Yeah. And even though I was Mm. molested when I was 13 years old and a way that I compensated for that instead of telling anyone at first was to change my relationship with food, to find comfort from food, Mm which involved mm-hmm. binging. Um, mm-hmm. And it didn't change my body. So I didn't really feel that I had to have a conversation with my body, but it definitely changed how I was in my body every afternoon. I would do it after school mm-hmm. or swim practice. There was like this very specific time. No one was home. It was just mm-hmm. me um, as a way of like comforting myself and getting ready to be with people again. And but yeah. I didn't really think about it like that. It was just a new thing that I did. Again, speaking mm-hmm. to my privilege, even with something so difficult and traumatic happening to me, I just still didn't have to think about it. Um, and when I turned yeah. 18 and the comforts of home were gone because I was in a dorm and I was at college and I was three hours away from home, I went to school in Las Cruces, which is three hours away from Albuquerque, and we're recording this podcast. And in, the, in that time, my body started to change. So what I actually noticed was not any of the things within the conversation did not come within people perceived me differently, commented to me differently. Um, 
that they noticed me differently, that I could like feel my presence in a room in a different way. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so I guess before that, that my privilege was of not being perceived, which I think is a real aspect of whiteness that I can deny that I'm mm-hmm. in the room. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, can, I can be there, but I don't have to be there. It's not the same. Yes. Um, and so this mm-hmm. is really, and so there's a lot of growth happening about this. There's a lot of growth happening in my body. And um, I did not like the attention change. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I again turned to food to be my support in that, which was again, binging. Um, I actually tried mm-hmm. to receive treatment in college, but I still had a BMI that was okay in an okay range. So I could not receive any treatment, not even counseling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that made me think it wasn't a problem. It's actually the conclusion that I took from that at that time. I've done a lot of therapy about this. So I know what my conclusions were at these different times. Um, right. And then, I started on a process of realizing I wanted to do research as a career or human mm. bodies as a career or just learning how things worked as a career. It was very interesting to me. And I worked in plants at first, so it didn't really reflect on me, but something that started happening as I considered what my job might be after college, um, because mm-hmm. I wanted to work with people, I applied to National Institutes of Health and I got a research um, fellowship. and. I think it was Cancer Research Training Fellowship, CERTA. I can't even remember what it stands for. But um, I started working, I was working in pediatric oncology. Um, And aside from college, which was like my first experience without the protections of home and all the privileges that came with that, right? So just some being stripped away, but still many present. This was my first chance at being a woman in a male-dominated field. I didn't really Mm -hmm. feel that before. Um, And my boss felt very much felt this and was trying to compensate for it. She very explicitly said it very much out loud. And I really sort of went along with that and had these new feelings of being perceived as a professional, not just as a person. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I, it was very stressful and binging didn't work actually for the first time in my life. So I yeah. trained for a marathon. That was my solution. Mm, um, mm-hmm. And Oh, wow. Did that help with the stress and anxiety? Yeah, And I also decided to go on a diet at the same time. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. I actually did it at the end of college. Go, I went on a diet with my family. I had just learned about a diet. Um, my family was interested, so we like, did it together. But like I was the person mm-hmm. who was in charge of like how we would do it and what are the rules and that kind of thing, which gave me a sense of control yeah. that felt really great. Yeah. So mm-hmm. flashing back forward to working at National Institutes of Health or um, being in this marathon training, this is like a distinct memory I have about how not embodied and how not caring for myself I was at the same time. Those two things might go together. It was someone's birthday in the lab and I made cupcakes mm-hmm. and I did not lick the batter off of any implement that I, any utensil that I was using, the bowl. <laughs> I did not lick any icing when I iced them and I let everyone in the lab eat them in front of me and I ate nothing. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Which at the time was like the most sense of control in this lab environment yes. that had no control. It's actually one of the few days I felt like I had control in that environment. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh mm-hmm. yeah, you want to perceive me? Well, I'm going to be doing the thing that works for me right now to be perceived exactly how I'd like. Yes. And as one can imagine through this process, I injured my body while training for a marathon and treating my body like this, that I would deprive yeah. myself um, in public 
as some kind of show. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And I hurt my knee. I actually will never be able to run the way that I ever did before that because of what happened during mm-hmm. that time. Um, and I also, my relationship with alcohol changed around this time mm. because binging didn't feel like it worked. Alcohol sure did. So that's the first time I yeah. entered Overeaters Anonymous to try to mm. find some balance there. Um, this was in Washington, D.C. or, well, Maryland, outside of Washington, D.C. And um, it was not a great environment there for me. I didn't like, I did not feel witnessed or resonance, like mm. we were describing. Like, mm-hmm. I did, actually didn't feel like I had that. So doing research, all this environment, I thought that I could quote unquote fix this. And I think this is something about embodiment that I actually think about a lot now is that I, instead of fixing any, okay, let me, let me, hmm, how would I say this? So it tends like outside of embodiment, not being embodied, everything feels like a fix, like magical thinking, like a magical pill, everything's like fix, fix, fix. Um, so I can, I can really tell when I wasn't embodied because I still would have these moments of, and mostly looking back, of why did this happen? Why do I feel frustrated at work? Why do I feel unheard at work? Why do I feel like I can't be at work? Like, is my full self? All these kinds of conversations were happening after, never before I went to work, like never at work, never asking myself, like, what do I need? It's a very embodied yeah, question. Yeah. What do I need right now? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I thought the fix was to change the kind of research that I was doing. That was really Uh, happening is I didn't want to do what's called wet lab research, which is working with cells. Um, So I enrolled in a master's program for public health. I knew it was still people. I knew I wanted to help people. I knew I had this drive to do that. And there was something that was just missing. So public health, (laughs) which we'll probably talk about a lot in this podcast is- Ooh, I can't wait. (laughs) of people making decisions for other people and othering them, Mm, not uh seeing them as uh people, seeing them as samples, seeing them as population, seeing them as outliers, Uh, words like that. Um, And also not talking about individuals or even groups of people and that they need help. Although there are some exceptions to this, which we could name, but it's also like, here's our intervention. Like something needs to be fixed Mm -hmm. on such a big level that we're going to intervene now is like the literal language of that. And Mm -hmm. I began to study myself as part, like, I, I thought that was the way to connect to myself. Whatever yeah. I learned, mm-hmm. and I had a, a public nutrition focus. So whenever we learned about something that happens, like groups of people not eating fruits and vegetables and what can help, it was like, well, can that also apply to me? Like this mindset of mm. how I could really tr- not be embodied as something I'm even realizing now while talking about it. Like, how can I be researched so that I'm not a problem? kind of thought mm, feeling mm, or mm-hmm, also how mm-hmm. can I get more connected to myself it's something I think was happening at the same time but the fixing part is very confusing very cognitively dissonance oriented that I can't mm-hmm. my actions and myself cannot be the same thing right it's very separating feeling right, right. Um, and it really felt at that time it was very stressed out that degree it's a lot of people do accelerated degrees so there's this environment of a lot of stress and anxiety Mm. Um, glossing things over, not a lot of depth, which doesn't make a lot of sense for a public health degree. It feels like something to really <laughs> like go into. And Let's so I lived this, yeah. very much at the surface at that time. So a lot mm. of what I'm saying now mm-hmm. is a realization I had later, like I was just going through it. And mm-hmm. the environment of public health is one where you have a class where you talk about intersections that might exist in public health. 
for one semester only and you like talk about i'm snapping right now like you talk about <laughs> each of them very very quickly mm -hmm. um and one day we covered the tuskegee syphilis experiments we also wow. covered the pima indians and the harm i don't think that's what they'd like to be called that's what they called it in my course mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. and all of these ways in which public health had harmed people and the solution, even though I loved this professor and I loved this course and I loved the information, was all about how problems were of the past and how we're doing things differently uh, now. Like mm -hmm, a real mm -hmm. ignorance about what's really happening, which feels yeah. like an analogy for what, how I was not embodied during all of my life, right. truly, up until right. this moment. Mm -hmm. um, and then I got, I started to work in public health. Um, and I realized what I actually wanted to be talking about and also the area in which I felt I needed to fix that remained to be seen was nutrition and diet. So I went back mm. to school to be a dietitian. Um, and during, it's called a didactic program in dietetics. So it's like the standardized courses that everyone in the country takes to be a dietitian. Um, the examples used both in my public health public nutrition classes and also in this program, you experiment on yourself a lot. I'm trying to think of the phrase, mm. I am both the researcher and the lab rat, right? That's like this phrase where it's like, we're gonna do everything on ourselves. And mm -hmm. a lot of that stuff is very harmful, full of microaggressions, um, full of stigma and an incredible amount of bias. And mm -hmm is asking us to do something a very particular quote unquote right way. So I took mm -hmm. on this challenge and I experimented with everything on myself um, and put myself through a lot of things that I really now wish that I had not done, but felt like it was in the name of science, was in the name of my degree, and also would teach me what to do with people yeah. in the future, right? And really mm -hmm. help them. And it was very harmful. First of all, the eating behavior of everyone around me, including myself, changes when we begin to experiment on ourselves. People begin to yeah. rationalize that they can tell what's going on. Um, there's actually a name for this it's called the illusory truth effect, the illusion that I now know what's going on because I know how to research this, right? That I can use myself mm. as a subject as if I'm not going to be subjective, which mm -hmm. whether or not research is subjective or public health is a whole other conversation, right? It pretends yes. to be objective. <laughs> Um, yes. And it was alarming to be around other people who were going through something that had been internalized in me and that I had not dealt with the whole time. Mm -hmm. um, and I started um, trying to seek support again because it felt not okay to yeah. me. And again, I just had one blood sugar that was just barely above normal that corrected itself the next time my lab work was taken and I received no support. Um, yeah. I tried to even get counseling in this time um, and my body had changed. I no longer had a body of privilege anymore. And so I was just told to quote unquote, lose weight, that that was the solution mm. to what was going on. So mm -hmm. I tried to, and so did everyone in my program because anyone in a larger body got the same answer from the same student health yeah. center. Um, the only place we mm. all had access to for time and money. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. A lot of us had to go on food stamps because of the requirements of paying for school, right? It was kind of I feel like it was just dipping my toes into a, a life with less privilege than I had before. And it was temporary, mm. right? Which also speaks to my privileges. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And this experience made me want to run from my program. Like I didn't get that I wanted to be more embodied. I didn't get that I wanted to 
have different experiences, be around different ways of thinking. Like it felt like there was only one way of thinking. So it made me want to run. So I applied to an internship in another state, which is my home state of Mm. Mexico. Mm -hmm. And that is when I became like, I became like not a body in that Mm. internship. It's very stressful. You have to work very, very long hours. You have to pay for the right to be there. I moved back in with my parents, right? It's a lot of things at once. Um, and I basically yeah. put my head down and saw it as a learning experience and went through. But I got very, very sick during this time. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, had to miss some days of my internship, which is a pretty big no-no in those kinds of programs. I had to make up for those days. I didn't really get to miss sure. them. Um, and I asked mm-hmm. for support from my program that I would not be triggered by these things and they could not comply because it's, again, standardized. I had to complete the competencies. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. I did have a counselor at the time who listened to me and doctors who also listened to me, which felt very supportive, but they were also Mm -hmm. about fixing, making my symptoms disappear, Mm -hmm. not dealing with things outside of my body or that I would want to be embodied in order to see these things in advance. So the pattern really was, I only noticed things after they got bad. I only noticed after I got Mm -hmm. really sick. Um, I only noticed after moving to a new place, all these things I've described, each of them is a move to another city or another state, right? I'm like moving, moving, moving. Yeah. Right? If I never stop, then I never have to deal with loss. I never have to deal with yes. grief work related to my body. Yes. Like this really tough stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know that's what I was doing at the time. Maybe neither did I anywhere within myself, but I really see that now. <laughs> Um, yeah. and that internship really solidified for me that I wanted to do things differently, that I had never taken a break in my life and that I wanted to get more connected with myself. So as soon as I got my credentials to be a dietitian, I took a year off. Wow. Um, wow. it's the first break I ever had. And I was 31 mm-hmm. in my whole life. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm almost 39 now to give, it's so interesting that you and I have this seven year mark that we both brought up today. Yeah. And as I went into being a dietitian in New York, I worked in a cafe to see if I wanted to run one as a waitress. I worked as a concierge dietitian where I was basically at the beck and call of whoever was my client. Mm -hmm. I went wherever they asked me to go. Um, And there was some, it was exhausting. New York is, I was in New York. So as again, after my internship, I again moved somewhere. (laughs) <laughs> it was exhausting because New York is exhausting. It's really loud. Yeah. I love New York. Mm-hmm. I love it so much. And also to put myself at the beck and call of other people means that mm-hmm. I have to run at the speed of New York. Yes. So I never really took any breaks. Again, it would be after I got really sick that I took notice of things. And I began to not like any of the work that I was doing. And realized how much I self-identified with my job and not as a person anymore. And that I wasn't getting the New York experience that I was there for, which is to enjoy whatever I was doing. I wanted to be enjoying the city. I wasn't paying attention while I was walking really fast between clients. I wasn't paying attention to my own needs in terms of rest or what I needed to eat or anything like any kind of self-care. category. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And I just, I don't know, something, something happened I, I wanted to call it an epiphany just now, but that doesn't feel right. Um, I had a moment of utter despair is actually how I think mm. I want to phrase it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Where I'm like, what am I doing? How? I just realized that everything I'd done until that moment felt like a reaction outside of myself. And I wasn't checking in with myself or my adult life. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't regret anywhere that I was, but it was missing an element of me and me as the person felt so distinct and separate from me at work that it felt like it could not be both that I had to choose at any one time. Mm -hmm. And I wanted Mm -hmm. them to be the same. 
So I started to go on an exploration of well, what else can I do? Do I need a new career? Like what's yeah. going on? Um, and I came across body image work, mm. which just as a concept, uh, including things like body positivity felt strange to me that I would be working on my image. Like just that word doesn't mm -hmm. quite fit right for me. Um, and so I was already at someone's wedding in Europe. Again, speaking about privilege, I it feels like very privileged to say I was in Europe. So <laughs> I went to the last body image workshop in London that was held by Marcy Evans and Fiona Sutherland. Wow. Um, to be in a room with, it felt interesting to be in a room that was not my own culture, even though it's very mm -hmm. similar. And to just hear what people had to say and to explore how we might explore this with other people by first exploring it with ourselves. And what I got in that room is that I had never explored this with myself. Wow. Mm -hmm. I had ideas mm -hmm. about clients. I really related to what other people were saying, but I didn't have a lot of experiential things to go over in my head because I had mm -hmm. not processed this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I also learned terms like cognitive dissonance and realized that's why I felt like my I had to be two different people and that they felt like it yes. wasn't okay that I was two different people. Mm -hmm. And so that was 2018 in the Labor Day weekend when I attended that. And I have been on an adventurous journey ever since to <laughs> unlearn the shit out of all the things that I learned that kept me continuously from connecting with myself. Yeah. And mm -hmm. it's been a process. Yeah. It still is a process. Like I don't think <laughs> I don't think there's really a possibility of perfect or good embodiment or body image ever yes. because life Agreed. is always going to happen. We're always going to be a different person when we woke up because it's literally a new day. Something I loved about when you were talking about your embodiment journey is you were really think talking about now, like where you feel now. And something I really mm -hmm. resonated with when you were talking is about how it's a journey. Like it's not a landing pad. And now, right now in this conversation, as I'm talking to you, I'm realizing how embodied I am. And I was really relating actually to something you said at the beginning, which is like how nervous you could tell you felt. Like yeah. I'm looking at my face in the Zoom and how like glossy and sweaty I am because I'm nervous when <laughs> I'm talking about this. Like to share this feels really important mm -hmm. and it also feels very vulnerable. Mm -hmm. I feel really hot. I tucked my shirt into my bra just now so that it's like <laughs> I can have some kind of like the fan. I can actually feel it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And just, which feels great. It's bringing a sense of relief mm -hmm. because I'm listening to myself, right? So if I was talking about now, like where is my journey now? Um, I pay attention to things like that. Um, yeah. I have been diagnosed with ADHD in the last few months. Again, because of privilege, I was able to continue like kind of strong arming my way through life and being productive. So, and also women are underdiagnosed because it doesn't appear the same, right? Or anyone, mm. um, identifying with being femme in any way, right? There is this perception mm -hmm. that things are different for us in a way that we can manage it or we're doing good enough. I'm putting these in air quotes, by the way, to everyone listening. <laughs> and yeah. That we um, aren't sick enough, right? Which is kind of a mm -hmm. theme about embodiment as well, that there should just be an embodiment is the way that I hear it talked about. And what I, I don't resonate with that. I have all kinds mm -hmm. of embodiments all the ways in which I have related to myself and the world around me. 
and mm -hmm. I embrace them now. Just like I was saying to you, all the Siobhan's, that show also <laughs> made me think about all of the yeah, gens. That all came the gens, yeah. When I was a kid, uh -huh. I was Jenny K. That's what my mom called me. I've been a Jen Jen. I've been a Jenny. I've been a lot of things. So when I say you can call me anything, it's because there are these versions of me that were each of those names that I love and want yeah. to stay connected to. Mm -hmm. And that feels also like embodiment to me that I can live within myself and like know myself now, but also do the repair work, trauma informed work, release, repair or restoration is what I meant to say of feeling mm -hmm. like I can be in my body because I can tell myself in the past what I would have liked to have noticed. That's very healing for me. Um, yes. What I would like to have been told that would have been a form of mm -hmm. safety. Um, mm -hmm how I would have liked to have been validated in my life and also how I would have liked to identify that felt more true to me than just what feels like a life of rebelling against something and moving towards something else because I didn't know mm -hmm. how to connect with myself. Right. So I connected with the next mm -hmm. thing to do. Um, mm -hmm. So I feel a lot of peace now. Um, and when I say a lot, I mean like moments of peace. I still have, <laughs> I still am susceptible to all the other things, just like we all are. Sure. Mm -hmm. There is just a sense of presence and connection. In the last episode I was talking about, it might surprise you that I'm a good listener, but that's because I didn't truly know that I was a good listener because I wasn't paying attention to uh, my own listening that whole time. Yeah. I paid attention mm -hmm. to my talking. That was part of the, I don't like being perceived right now. Oh, you're perceiving I'm talking mm -hmm. too much or I'm too loud. You know, the too much club. I'm too mm -hmm. loud. I'm talking too much. I'm, I'm, um, listening too much. Like, in, in other words, I'm not productive enough. Like these, uh, all these kinds of things. Uh, and just, as I was saying to you, just really feeling the wisdom of my body that's available for me to notice when I'm present and embodied. You used the word mm. belonging or the phrase belonging to yourself earlier. And yeah. I've actually been thinking yeah. about it in the back of my head the entire time we've been talking so far. <laughs> um, because I want to belong to myself and I want all of the past versions of me to belong to me also which is going to require mm -hmm. work and the privilege of being able to go to therapy and all of that stuff. And it mm -hmm. also feels really important that there yes. are people in the world doing that. That feels like it changes something collectively, which we're going to talk more about later. But that is my very long winded, I feel like way of saying that, but maybe that's just me thinking too much immediately after bringing it up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I could listen to you talk even longer if you want to. It is such a gift and such an honor to hear your story. I'm sending you air hugs yeah. across the across the interwebs. And yeah, I think it's it's really beautiful. It, you know, we talk all the time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we, we are pretty pretty much in constant contact, you know, on almost daily basis. And somehow we we never have this discussion and and it's really a gift to know this about you and i feel closer to you i feel like i understand you better i feel like i'm more even more connected um than we were before it's really it's really a gift yeah thank you for thank saying you. that and that yeah. reminds me that as you were talking i was going i don't know this part um <laughs> oh, right? um which when we t i just you know, when we talk so often it, it gives that impression that we know everything and I love right. the chance to have some structure here on a podcast that is about uncovering and kind of digging deeper so that it kind yeah. of pushes my assumptions to the side. So I can yeah, really hear absolutely. and see you. It feels like it adds a level of authenticity. So I'm also honored. And thank you so much for saying that. Thank you. Thank you for telling me about it. <laughs>
a few things you said uh, raised some thoughts for me, raised some questions for me. I, I also had the same experience in that I had fat family members um, and I never saw them as different or less than or anything like that. And I, I think I hear that experience so often when people talk about their own embodiment journey and that they were surrounded by these people who, you know, in my life, mostly women who were bigger and lovely and wonderful and warm. And so it never even, you know, never even stood out to me that they were differently bodied, honestly. Um, so yeah, I just, I thought of that when you said that. And I, you know, I, I really appreciate your vulnerability about talking about being molested when you were younger and how it um, affected eating in the, in the future. It made me think about this very uncomfortable and very, I think it's bullshit. Yay, we both finally swore during this thing. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's bullshit. I was like, yes, here I um, When... <laughs> Yes, profanity. It's time. We love profanity. Um, But it made me think, first of all, I appreciated your vulnerability in talking about it. And I um, have a history of sexual assault too. I was um, raped, I would say eight years ago. Um, And I don't often talk about it because my eating definitely shifted after that. But I often don't bring that up because I hate if it plays into this bullshit idea that larger people eat to protect themselves from being assaulted again. And I think that's bullshit. I I mean, maybe that's true for some people. I've had clients very clearly say, no, that is not what happened. Um, For me, it was not a reaction to keep people away. Like I... um, I feel like I've been most embodied sexually when I am embracing my larger body, when I have been larger. Um, so that definitely wasn't a part of it, but I, I didn't eat as a way to do that. I ate because I felt out of control because something I'd been violated. Um, and so I really appreciated your expressing that. Thank you. Thank you. I, I got misty while you were talking because <laughs> um, I was just thinking about one of the Jennifers that lives inside of me um, about, I talked about how alcohol helped me when binging didn't. Um, I I didn't really share, although I feel like I really want to now that I listened to your reflection. um, I stopped drinking alcohol almost eight years Mm. ago, about seven and a half Mm -hmm. years ago. These are like parallel time periods that keep showing up, really interesting to me. Um, yeah. I am a person who believes in science, even though I love science. So that's just, that, I'll just leave it there. So um, I stopped drinking because I did not, I, I, and I just maybe put this together right now while listening to you, because this feels like a new thought and it's probably going to be really emotional. Take your time. Ooh. There was the last night that I drank alcohol. In the process of drinking alcohol, being with other people, I felt really alone. Yeah. And I was with people I really liked. Like one of them is my partner. <laughs> I, I really <laughs> like these people. I love these people. And I just felt alone in the room. And it's because I felt detached from myself. It was like, mm. I hope people can hear me through my like cry voice. But there was... I realized that I'm disconnected from myself 
while I was disconnecting from myself. And I woke up because that's what alcohol does. And the next day, the next morning, actually afternoon, when I woke up, when I had a whole day's worth of work to do, I felt horrible in my body. I remembered Mm. what I had thought the night before, that I'm not connected to myself. And I realized Mm -hmm. how connected I felt about things that felt awful, how sick I felt, how awful I felt. Mm -hmm. And I did not want to have the thought the night before again, followed by what happened the next day anymore. I just Mm. wanted what happened the next day. That's it. That's all I Mm -hmm. wanted. I'm just realizing Mm -hmm. now that was like a really embodied thought, but I didn't see it. And it's really powerful to realize this right now with you because you're an important person for me to realize things with. Yeah, absolutely. And I... I now, like, it became, you were just, it became really hard to have sex because I wasn't doing Mm. it while drinking anymore, which I didn't realize Mm. were connected. And it was hard to notice all the things about my body. Um, Like, they just felt very present all of a sudden. Um, I kind of said it earlier, like, body image is how I found this. And, like, that's where the cognitive dissonance came from. But I'm really sitting with right now that it's when I just woke up in the world and wasn't drinking anymore. And everything uh, felt fresh and new. And like, um, like I was 17 ish in my relationship with mm-hmm. myself because that's actually when I started drinking. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what I'm realizing right now, something that's really important to say, not that I'm realizing this part newly, but just like to say it embodiment is a journey. And I realize that I'm like refreshingly new to it all the time. Yes. Uh-huh. Where it's like, wow, I've uh-huh. never, like some of this I'm saying right now, I've actually never said out loud. Definitely not together yeah. because I've never yes. had this context and this space to talk about something like this or it didn't feel that way. Uh-huh. Um, and to be now in a fat body and almost 39 years old and to think about the younger privileged versions, more privileged, I am, more privileged versions of myself, especially related to being perceived in my body. Yes. That the gift of being in this larger body that I have been sitting in, but not saying out loud to myself is that taking up space physically allows me to take up space in my embodiment as well, right? The mental Mm. journey, philosophical journey, the psychological journey that I get to the non-dualism, right? Because when I'm saying all that, I'm talking about my mind, but that's still part of my body. So it's one and the same. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. I can have that in real time with you. I can have it in talking about my story yeah. and what feels like beginning to end for the first time. Well, now, not it's not mm-hmm. the end, but you know, up until now. <laughs> <laughs> and it just feels very powerful. Um, yes. I'm trying to think of a word that describes this feeling I feel in my body. Sometimes I cannot come up with a word. Well, let me see if I can. There's something, it's not just vulnerable. Mm-hmm. There's also something very flexible about this conversation. I don't feel rigid. Yeah. I just feel free. Maybe freedom is the right word. Flexibly mm-hmm. free. It doesn't, mm-hmm. like not yeah. conditionally free. I'm flexibly free. Yeah. I'm the one who gets yeah. to discern. I don't have to like expose everything to the world. But I get Absolutely. to be the one to discern. Um, feels like a really important part of embodiment in all of its context mm-hmm. and versions. Um, so mm-hmm. I'm just really realizing mm-hmm. that. Okay, so I guess I'm done now because that reminded me of a lot. So I really want to yeah. say thank you back to you about this because sharing something in a space where I know other people are going to listen to us, but also just feeling held by you is really important yes. to me. And it's really important. Yeah, it's really supportive. And I like feel it yeah. in my bones, like deep. And, yeah. Well, whatever the deepest parts of our bodies are that I can't really sense. <laughs> my marrow. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my cells. I don't know. And deep in my fascia. Just... Who knows? 
<laughs> Something that you just said when you're trying to figure out the word, what came to me was the word witnessing. Um, I feel like I can, you know, through lots of, lots of years of therapy and, you know, being open and honest with the people that I love, I have shared who I am, but that doesn't mean that I always witness for myself who I am. And like, I feel like I'm just holding space for myself. And I've said I've held, held space for myself before, but I, it feels like I am witnessing. That's what embodiment for me is often just witnessing who I am, what I am, where I am, not to share it with other people, but to just witness it. And that just feels really powerful for me. Ooh, okay. I'm going to do another, I thought of it, that I'll be done. So it- <laughs> just do this back yeah. and forth the whole time. We always do this. Um, yeah. Right, which tells me that you've witnessed me. It's a really important of our conversation to yeah. me. I use the word important yeah. a lot as well. Like, I, I actually <laughs> want to use like, oh man, I don't know another word to describe the feeling that I feel from that. It reminds yeah. me of agency and autonomy and using other words for that, like self-determination and a place in which we get to determine what we are allowed to do and then no one else gets to determine what we're allowed to do, right? That it comes from ourselves, mm -hmm. whatever words mm -hmm. we'd like to use for that, um, is a really vulnerable space. It's a really authentic yeah. space. It's like a within mm -hmm. and without match at the same time. So it's like everybody can see our insides, all our thoughts, that's how it feels anyway. Um, yeah. And that can feel like really raw. Mm -hmm. I can feel... Um, I use the word tough and tender a lot, but it feels like both sides of things, things that feel warm and supportive and nourishing, and the other side that feels really challenging, triggering, stigmatizing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They actually can both exist, and that's part of resilience, like we used earlier. But I mean, like, <laughs> way in, in way in which it serves me and is important to me, not about the world, but about me. Yeah. And mm -hmm. also the word tolerance, because I'm just realizing as we're talking like first the window of tolerance came to mind because I always think about that when I feel mm. like both the extra hot and extra cold are like in balance and I can yeah. handle all of it. But also yeah. tolerance of myself is something that I have to be embodied to do. Yes, A lot absolutely. of what I described earlier in my journey, it's wild to me that I didn't, as I'm hearing about, talking about my embodiment journey, you talking about yours, that I realized all of my escaping, running, doing things for other people's reasons, whatever mm -hmm. I've called it, a lot of it was also being oppressed in male-dominated professions and things like that, right? But that yeah. I mm -hmm. couldn't tolerate myself in these situations, mm -hmm. because I, but I wasn't looking in or addressing or owning any of that, like the responsibility that is mine in these sorts of moments and conversations. I was just running. Mm -hmm. I actually have mixed type of ADHD, okay. which means, which makes a lot of sense about why it wasn't perceived from the outside. Um, part of it is impulsivity. So in moments of anxiety and stress and not wanting to look in and thinking about how challenging that might be in all of that, it's easier to be impulsive, right? Mm -hmm. It feels good. It gives me access to dopamine. I can like go run with that for a lot, like literally run sometimes with that. Right. And I, under, I have an understanding Right, a, a diagnosis is just a perspective. So I have mm -hmm. an understanding of why I might have done that all this time. Mm -hmm. And also, in thinking about what you were saying earlier, that just because we're in larger bodies doesn't mean we eat to cope. Right, right. Like as our predominant coping skill. Mm -hmm. um, 
there are so many parts of me that I am beginning to notice or have been noticing for a couple of years that help me be more embodied because I'm present to them, that witnessing yes. of myself mm -hmm. that you described. Um, and that feels, um, what word would I use here? That feels like not just an unlearning, but a radical action yeah. in my life, like a revolution of one, me and my life. Embodiment is a revolution for me mm -hmm. um, that I would not just be impulsive to avoid because I can't find embodiment there, yeah. but that I might ask myself the question of something like, what if I can be embodied here? I was never even asking that question. I didn't know to mm -hmm. ask it, first of all. And second of all, I never asked. Right. So right. Yes, I was hearing exactly. that in what you were saying and what you were saying also, which I have a feeling I'm going to really love listening to this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I can't wait. Because I'm getting so much out of it in the in real time. Yeah. I really can't wait to witness myself and be mm -hmm. embodied while listening to myself on a podcast, which I yeah. never thought I'd say. Yeah. That feels... <laughs> feels really pretty powerful it's pretty expansive it, yeah it feels like reclaiming something mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. absolutely i don't quite have words for that right now but something Oof, that's good Whew. had to dance for a second give me a second okay, okay. <laughs> it's just wow that um this has been such a rich and nuanced and emotional conversation for me oh, i did not me expect too. this when we were coming in i mean i wrote me <laughs> Yeah, I remember what I was going to say. I cried a lot, but I cry a lot anyway, so that doesn't surprise me. I just like to cry. And um, so I knew it would be emotional on my part. I don't know why it would be even more emotional to say it out loud than it was writing. Um, but it's just been such a gift. And I think, like I said, when we first started, I think it's really important that we share who we are and where we come from because we'll be having really vulnerable conversations with other people too. And I want our listeners to know you all who are listening or reading the transcript um, to know us because it's really important that we are, um, I think it's a part of embodiment for me. I can't say it for you, Jen, um, but part of this embodiment process for me is just owning who I am and where I'm coming from. Ooh, I like that very much. And I agree. You can speak for me on that because I agree. And yeah, it's just been a really beautiful time here with you. Mm -hmm. Also unexpected for me. In right? ways that I would use words like healing for yes. to say things out loud and have them not just live in my body. Mm -hmm. The release of that very much feels like a chance for embodiment to grow, elevate, transform, evolve, whatever words you'd like to use for that. Yeah. Um, and that's what I'm here for. That yes. kind of experience. Ooh. And so, yeah. Woo, yeah. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Yikes. I love it. Okay. Woo. This is so, so good. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you for joining us. Thank you for listening to season one of the Embodiment for the Rest of Us podcast. Episodes will be published every two weeks wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find the podcast at our website, embodimentfortherestofus.com, and follow us on social media on Twitter at Embodiment Us. And on Instagram at Embodiment for the Rest of Us. We look forward to being with you again next time in conversation. <laughs>